Welcome to the Kixology Podcast, a show all about running shoes. My name is Brian Metzler, your host and resident running shoe geek. I'm also the author of Kixology, a book about the hype, science, culture, and cool of running shoes. In this episode, I talk about the rise of super shoes and how they've impacted the sport of running and why, no matter if you're an aspiring elite or a committed age grouper, you should invest in a pair of these shoes. I will also talk about how these new wave a fast marathon time should be viewed over the arc of time. Thanks for tuning in. Sit back and enjoy the show. Our sponsor for this episode is Gooder Sunglasses. Gooder Sunglasses are made by runners who know what runners need. No slip, no bounce performance with polarized protection in recklessly fun colors. They come in styles that actually look good. They have fun names. My favorites are the Phoenix at a Bloody Mary bar, which have wild translucent red frames with reflective orange tinted lenses. Oh, and they're priced at only 25 bucks. Can't beat that. Since 2018, Gooder has been proudly partnering with 1% for the Planet, a global movement that inspires businesses and individuals to support environmental solutions through annual memberships and giving strategies. 1% of Gooder's annual gross sales go directly to environmental nonprofits working toward making our world a better place. Learn more about this partnership and what you can do to support it by going to gooder.com slash podium. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash podium. Go there now, look good, and run gooder. Welcome to the show, everyone. Normally, this is a time where I welcome my guests and we start talking about uh, all things running shoes. Today, it's just me, and I'll be talking about the singular topic of the rise of the super shoes. So last week, December 20th in Chandler, Arizona, in an event called the Marathon Project, seven American men broke 210 in a marathon and 12 women broke 230. Uh, some amazing performances there. Uh, Martin Hayer ran 208.59, which is uh, seventh on the all-time list for U.S. men. And Sarah Hall ran 220.32, which is second on the all-time list behind Dina Castor's 2006 American record. Uh, that comes a few weeks after uh, several runners in Valencia, Spain, breaking the world record in the men's half marathon. Uh, Kibiwak Candy ran a ridiculous 57.32, which is 29 seconds faster than the previous record. Uh, I think the women's race was running 65.18 that day. Um, so we're seeing some incredible times, obviously, in a lot of different races, half marathon and marathon especially, even in this year when there hasn't been much racing because of COVID-19. Uh, what do all those results have in common? Every single one of those runners in those races, or at least in the top, say, 20 or 25, were wearing uh, some version of a super shoe, these, these crazy new shoes that have been all the rage in recent years that are built around having a carbon fiber plate inside a really resilient, thick foam midsole that allows for uh, runners to run much more efficiently and ultimately faster than ever before. So what are super shoes and how did we get here? You know, I think through the history of running shoe development, starting back in the 1960s, uh, right up to now, uh, shoe manufacturers have had a couple goals, one of which obviously is to help runners uh, run faster, run better. And the other one seems to be um, obviously to sell more running shoes. I think if you look back at the, you know, some of the earliest shoes that were really designed for training and everyday runners, you know, the New Balance Trackster, um, some of the early Asics uh, shoes 
Um, you didn't really Nikes. Obviously, there was a, a lot of things happening with those shoes um, to make them better, right? But but again, to 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 make them more marketable, to sell better, and, and certainly, um, you know, the use of materials, the use of new foams, the the design, uh, even the color. Obviously, we're we're all kind of geared toward those things. I think that. Um, if you were to draw a line from those, you know, initial shoes in the '60s and early '70s to right now, um, certainly those goals are intact and uh, haven't really wavered um, uh, to this point. But that's how we got to where we are now, which is having these shoes that, um, through research, development, innovation, new materials, and everything else, we're at a point where shoes. Um, do a much better job at capturing the energy the runner puts into them and uh, increasing the propulsive feel um, uh, as we run. Um, so we're in this age of super shoes, which are, again are these really thick, cushy, foamy shoes that almost look cartoon-like. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're making it, us run faster. Um, essentially, these carbon fiber plates, these curvy carbon fiber plates, uh, allow you to run much faster um, with every stride, obviously much more efficiently. Um, it started with uh, Nike unveiling the 4% shoes essentially several years ago. Elliot Kipchoge uh, famously ran a marathon time trial in Italy in 2017 where he tried to break two hours for the marathon. He didn't. He ran two hours in 25 seconds and really set off uh, the idea that these shoes obviously uh, can do extraordinary things. We know for a long time that marathon times, both men and women, have been decreasing through time. Uh, the natural progression of human performance uh, was the biggest part of that, but now the shoes played a much bigger role. And so this quest for the sub-two-hour marathon became a huge thing for shoe brands um, and athletes and coaches alike, but was really accelerated uh, as Nike started to work on this project. Uh, Adidas too, other brands too, um, but Nike was the first to come out with a commercial shoe that allowed this to happen. It was all built around this idea of these super foams, which are much more resilient and cushioning uh, than ever before, and the carbon fiber plate. And uh, essentially, they work in concert to kind of maximize the forward motion of the stride. So Kipchoge runs two flat 25 that, that day in, in May of 2017 in Monza, Italy, and everyone's aware that, wow, things are changing. Uh, certainly every brand was uh, working on a shoe, if not immediately right then, uh, but certainly right after. And uh, since then, we've seen this this rise of the super shoes. So what does this all mean? Um, people have said that these shoes uh, are a form of mechanical doping. It's not fair. It's illegal. Um, I understand all this point. I'm not really sure that's true, though. I think that certainly we're at a time of evolution um, in, in running. And, and, you know, I know people are quick to, to knock that down, but I think that certainly um, there are parallels in other sports that have shown evolution in product. And so going from wooden tennis rackets to graphite or carbon fiber tennis rackets changed that game quite a bit. Certainly um, oversized mountain bike tires, oversized skis uh, certainly changed. Even when Hoka came out with oversized cushioning, that was a game changer, even if it was mostly geared toward cushioning. I think the one parallel that people question is, you know, how swimming had these great new technologically advanced suits in 2000 uh, from Speedo, 
and eventually their organizing body, FINA, uh, outlawed those and didn't let those happen um, uh, going forward. So I think that, you know, um, in in the sport of running, uh, there was a time for about three years, 2017, probably 2016, until early 2020, where there was no regulation. And that was a problem, I think, uh, and a problem with me too. I think everyone wants to see a running race be a level playing field. And the notion that somebody is wearing a pair of shoes that gives them a distinct advantage in energy return doesn't allow that to happen. So finally, uh, after many brands starting to develop these kind of shoes, after Nike had put out the shoes commercially and had legitimate results at races, um, including the 2016 Olympics, um, finally World Athletics came out and had these regulations that uh, essentially suggested that no shoe could have a stack height of over 40 millimeters and there could only be one plate not multiple plates in a shoe. Um, at, which point, at that point, uh, several brands were working on new shoes. Um, we're going to debut at the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials in Atlanta back in February. And so a lot of the shoes were able to come out. Um, every other brand came out with a new shoe, uh, Brooks, Hoka, Saucony, Skechers. Um, and so that, that more or less created a level playing field, even if Nike had a head start and had an advantage. Um, do I think it's mechanical doping? Um, no, but I think we're in a different era. Things have changed for sure. I think that if, if all runners have access to these shoes and, you know, certainly at an elite level, they do, although not every brand to date has a shoe with a carbon fiber plate. Specifically, Ultra does not, although um another co company within the ultra umbrella under the vf brand uh the north face is developing a shoe for trail running so certainly there's a lot going on still um i think that it's clear these shoes do produce an advantage um to running but also in training i think there's a greater recovery element that allows you to do your two-hour run and feel much much more recovered uh two days later than you would have normally um, and so that recovery allows you to train harder during the week and allows your training to improve potentially. Um, so there's a lot of aspects uh, to this that I think is um, certainly positive, but also nuanced and multi multifaceted. Um, if all runners have access to these shoes on the starting line of a race, um, whether it's the marathon, uh, the Chicago Marathon, New York City Marathon, the Olympic Marathon next summer uh, in Tokyo, or on the track, you know, we've seen a lot of innovations with track spikes and eventually World Athletics did regulate track spikes. Um, if you look back to the World Championships in Doha in 2019, there was a lot of prototype spikes that were setting a lot of fast times, winning a lot of races, um, even in this past year, setting a lot of world records. I think, I think the, the biggest thing is that prototypes should not be allowed in competition. Um, and World Athletics, now that they have these regulations for both road running shoes and track shoes, uh, needs to uh, regulate and investigate shoes uh, before, before a competition. You can't just allow shoes to, to willy-nilly be in a race um, and later find out they were a prototype. The one outlier to all that is the shoes that, the ASIC shoes that Sarah Hall uh, wore to finish second place in a great race in the London Marathon this past fall. That was a shoe that wasn't commercially available. And so there seemed to be a gray area around that. I'm not trying to cast aspersions on Sarah Hall or even Asics. It's just that 
everyone should know ahead of time what shoe everyone is running in. There shouldn't be any surprise like, oh, what did she run? What did he run in? You know, everything needs to be re- regulated and approved before competition begins. And then you'll have that um, level playing field. I think that's the most important thing uh, with, with regard to these new shoes. One of the first races we know that some of these shoes were used in competition was the 2016 U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon in Los Angeles. Essentially, that was the race where American runners were trying to qualify for the U.S. Olympic team that would be racing in Rio later that summer. And under the cloak of disguise, Nike put some of these prototype shoes with carbon fiber plates uh, on its runners in that race. And as it played out, uh, certainly there was a lot of factors um, as to how the race uh, was run and won. Um, Amy Craig eventually won the women's race and Galen Rupp won the men's race. Uh, Both were wearing those shoes. Um, other runners from other brands, uh, race well, um, in different shoes as well. Um, uh, but much was made out of Shalane Flanagan holding off a third place and finishing ahead of Kara Goucher. And here's Shalane Flanagan, obviously in distress, but holding on to make that fourth U.S. Olympic team and her second straight in the marathon. Uh, Shalane was wearing the shoes, the super shoes, and Kara was not. Um, that was the first time the shoes were really out and about, um, although it's clear that uh, Elliot Kipchoge probably had some prototypes in Berlin uh, the year before and other races. Um, but in that race, it was, it was much, much made uh, after the fact that, uh, you know, Kara didn't make the team and Shalane did. And, and did the shoes give her a 4% advantage? Um, I'd argue, yes, yeah, pro- probably um, Amy and Galen and, and Shalane all benefited from those shoes. And, and and Kara did not. It's also easy to note that Kara was wearing a pair of Skechers that had a really, um, you know, lackluster foam. And so as much as uh, Shalane had a great pair of shoes that was giving her more energy, um, the shoes that Kara wore uh, were doing the opposite. So the argument could, could be made that Kara was just not wearing a good pair of shoes. And at the same time, uh, Shalane benefited certainly from a, a kind of super technology that wasn't regulated yet. And that's the biggest thing is like, the question is, is there a, a level playing field for all the runners? I think, I think ultimately running is a simple sport. There's a starting line, there's a finish line, and it's how fast you get from point A to point B, um, certainly in competition. And, but, but to, to be a fair race, obviously you want all the variables to be the same for everybody. And the only real variable is uh, your training and the shoes on your feet. And so your training is, you know, how hard you work, how smart you work um, to the point of getting to the starting line. And then once you're at the starting line and the starting gun sounds, hopefully it's an equal race and the best man or woman wins based on their effort and output that day. That changed obviously with these shoes because of uh, the ability for these new shoes and this new technology to allow you to run more efficiently. And so, again, that 2016 Olympic Trials Marathon kind of um, still stokes a lot of anger and, 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 and uh, angst among a lot of runners because then in the 2016 uh, Olympics in Rio, the same thing. The, the runners with those shoes that Nike had obviously did well, and I think they um, garnered all three medals. And certainly um, that led to later uh, the next year, the, the time trial that Kipchoge did in, in Italy, and all these fast times that have happened since then. Um, the other brands eventually caught up. Obviously, the new regulations uh, kind of leveled the playing field, but still we're at a point where all these fast times, um, including the race in Arizona uh, last week, 
are making obsolete all the times that led up to it. And it's the first time really in in this sport that it's happened. Uh, if you look at, you know, something like, like Derek Clayton's uh, sub 209 world record uh, back in the late 1960s, that was a time that is that, that up until recently and probably still is competitive, obviously, with uh, every time in, in history since then. And so as the progression of the world records have happened through time, um, Derek Clayton, who was wearing a pair of minimalist Anatsuka shoes with almost no foam at all, um, up until recently, uh, when when runners were running 203s, 202s in shoes that were essentially the same thing, only with marginally more foam, uh, all times could be compared relative to another. There's been a lot of things in running that have changed, obviously, through the years. I think one of the biggest things, you know, where you can compare times is the long ago cinder tracks um, compared to all weather tracks, obviously two different things, apples to oranges there, you can't compare those. And so if somebody ran, you know, 2750 in 10k um, on a cinder track versus, you know, 2617 on an all weather track with spikes on, obviously it's a different thing. And I think that's where we are now with the super shoes. Uh, it's changing the game. Um, and again, like, you know, the, the, the world records that were set even in the 1980s by Rob DiCostella or Steve Jones um, are of a different era now. But not only of a different era, but like it's it's just changed the game entirely as to what the marathon is. And and I don't think it's bad necessarily. I think it's it's it's, it's it, again it's part of progress, but it's something we all have to come to grips to. Our sponsor for this episode is Gooder Sunglasses. Gooder sunglasses are made by runners who know what runners need. No slip, no bounce performance with polarized lenses in recklessly fun colors starting at only $25. As a member of 1% for the Planet, 1% of Gooder's annual gross sales go directly to environmental nonprofits working towards making our world a better place. Learn more about this partnership and how you can support it by going to gooder.com slash podium. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash podium go there now and look good and run gooder so i think if you take into consideration kind of the recent uh, carbon fiber plate innovations uh it didn't happen overnight you have, to, you have to look back at kind of the way that shoes have been developed and innovation has happened throughout the years i think that uh again as i said earlier all shoes all shoe companies have been kind of geared at improving performance. And so if we look at uh, the foams that were initially, you know, the EVA foam that was initially put into shoes in the 1970s uh, and which lasted uh, for quite a while and is still around, that EVA foam was an element that added cushioning, but it didn't do much in terms of returning energy. Um, but that was the primary foam that existed in most shoes um, throughout the 90s um, until really uh, some polyurethane Foam midsoles became a thing, um, and and a few other uh, obviously materials. Uh, Nike used Air, Asics used Gel. There's a lot of brands that try to do a lot of things, but ultimately it was all tied to cushioning um, and more comfort than anything else. Um, it wasn't until uh, Reebok, I think, was the first to to use a carbon fiber plate in a shoe called the Graphite Road shoe in the 1990s. Um, in the early 2000s, uh, Adidas, Adidas used a carbon fiber plate. Um, in a shoe called the Pro Plate Racing Flat. Um, then Zoot, Zoot Sports, uh, a small triathlon brand, 
eventually put it into one of its ultra race triathlon shoes. None of those shoes really had the right formula. The carbon fiber plate um, was not properly shaped. It was not working with a an advanced foam. Um, and so having carbon fiber in there um, didn't really uh, create this energy return that we now know um, is happening in these modern shoes. But uh, shoe designers have been working with this for a long time. We know that uh, carbon fiber is a super light, super strong, super resilient uh, material. And ultimately, the idea was there. But obviously, the combination and the recipe uh, of this new paradigm didn't happen until really till the, the 2010s. Um, you know, Nike was one of the first to work with it. At the same time, Hoka was already working with uh, a design similar to that. Um, and of course, uh, Adidas, Adidas uh, had been working with it as well. Um, it had also been on the quest to help runners uh, break two hours in the marathon. And, and so all these things kind of came together. I think though, more importantly than the plate um, was the development of new foams. Uh, the, the, the foam material, the chemical processing of, of foams, uh, comes out of, uh, the Pacific Rim out of, out of East Asia. And there was a lot of new innovations happening, um, in the 21st century. And eventually, you know, people realized that, Hey, these, these EVA foams are not very resilient. They're somewhat heavy and they're pretty basic. Um, but when new foams, uh, came of age, um, the first of which was really, I think the Adidas boost foam uh came came together uh in, in a new process that really changed the game I, i'm kind of surprised in hindsight that no one really made an issue out of the world records that were set um in 2013 and 14 in some of the adidas boost shoes um when no one else had the, the foam so if people complained you know in recent years that oh only nike shoes had this carbon fiber plate um, before that in, in just a few years before that uh, Adidas had the most superior foam that returned a lot more energy uh, than any, any other foam. Um, so the Boost foam was was the first of these super foams that came on, and there was a foam war that was happening and still happening um, that appeared in a lot of shoes. Um, but it wasn't just Adidas. Obviously, Adidas now has the Light Strike Pro uh, midsole foam. Nike has the P-backs. Um, you know, even even Skechers has its Hyperburst foam, which is a great resilient foam. And, and Saucony has its power run foam. Every, every brand has this proprietary foam that allows um, for greater energy return. Um, it's not creating any false energy out of out of ether. It's actually just returning more energy that uh, the runner is putting in with every stride. Um, what does that mean? It means you know the original EVA foams might have been returning ten to twenty percent of that energy or thirty percent. That's you know uh, in your downward downward stride, you lose a lot of energy. Um, it, it just, it gets, uh, gets burned out in shock absorption. You hit the ground and then you've got to effort yourself with new muscular effort to, to start a new stride. What these foams do essentially with the plate in place, um, it allows you to have that downward energy more easily and more efficiently transferred into that new stride as you roll through it. Um, you know, people will say, Oh, it's it's mechanical doping because it's a new mechanical process that is happening, um, and you know there's probably some truth to that in that it's a different um, different method of uh, having your shoe uh, propel you through a run. Um, and to that point, I think one of the biggest things that has come out is is that 
these new shoes not only give you more energy in every stride, but because there's less energy wasted, there's less shock absorption, you know, being sent through your body. Um, I, I think also it's, it's pretty clear that uh, recovery is a lot easier, a lot better. If you look at, you know, um, how runners train, I think that uh, it, that's, that's got to be a big part of this whole equation too. I think that um, if you go for a two hour run in a typical uh, running shoe with EVA foam, you wind up taking a lot of abuse. We all know that that two hour run on, on Sunday afternoon is, is an essential part of our training, but it's also something that beats us up. And often uh, that fatigue stays in your legs for several days. And so the next day, Monday, you, you're, you're, you're sore and you're tired. Um, Tuesday, you might be getting back into your training with a, with a workout, but you're still feeling that fatigue of that, of that two hour run on Sunday. Um, the difference with these is there's much, much less uh, of that lingering fatigue. And I, I, I've personally experienced that in a lot of these shoes. And also, I know that many runners have said that, many elite runners have said that they can train better. They can train uh, with more volume, more intensity during the week than they ever could before. So when people say, oh, these shoes are giving us a race advantage, well, they are, certainly, but it's also helping us train um, much, much better at a different level that's allowing us to get to the starting line with that training in in much better fitness. Um, so that's, I think, played um, an equal role in having in having runners run faster. And so certainly the world records are one thing off the front. It's amazing that runners are running that fast. Um, and again, it's a component of both of those things, the shoes, but also the training. Um, but, but it's not just for the elites, it's for the sub elites. It's for the, the committed age grouper who wants to, you know, run 250 or break three hours for the first time. Uh, these shoes are really doing all that. Um, but again, it's, 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 again, it's allowing you to, to race faster, but also train better. So I think, uh, you know, in, in this crazy year of, of 2020, when very few races have happened, You've seen a lot of exceptional performances and certainly the u.s olympic trials marathon in atlanta back in late february um was certainly an indication of that uh you know a lot of runners uh, wearing a lot of these shoes by different brands um that was kind of the coming out party for a lot of the brands uh the hoka rocket x the brooks hyperion elite 2 uh they came out then the Saucony endorphin pro um i don't think the uh, new balance fuel cell rc elite was on the runners at that point but certainly that shoes played a, a big role. Um, the Skechers Razor 3 Elite certainly is one of these shoes. So every brand has this now. And so every brand uh, is selling a shoe that um, returns greater energy. Uh, are they the same? Uh, I don't know. I mean, like it, until somebody puts them all in a lab and studies them all from a, from a lab point of view, you know, we know that the University of Colorado famously studied the Nike shoes when they first came out and showed that they had uh, an average of 4% um, metabolic advantage over the other common racing shoes of the day. And during that study, the, the actual range, I think, was actually more from 3 to 6%. And so it shows that these shoes with this new design paradigm is a thing. It, it, you know, in labs, it shows that it, it is a thing. And uh, Jared Ward, a uh, Saucony athlete, did a study um, at Brigham Young University um, and showed the same thing. There were there were shoes that were getting you know five to seven percent improvement. So I think that you know certainly certainly these are helpful to everyone. And again, if if I'm training for Chicago next year, Chicago Marathon, I'm absolutely wearing these shoes both for training and for racing because it's going to help me as a middle aged uh, 
mid-pack marathoner run the time I want to run based on my improved training and my ability to run faster in the race. So people ask me all the time, what's the best of these super shoes? There's a lot of people that are training for marathons um, and, and hopefully we'll be training for marathons this year. Um, and they want to know what's the best shoe. Do, is it worth paying $250 for the Nike shoes? Uh, you know, uh, the Skechers shoe that is cost $180 on the same level. You know, what I tell people about that is um, whenever you're getting a shoe, you've got to focus on fit first. So you've got to understand how a shoe fits your foot. But also with these shoes, these super shoes, the ride is so different um, in these. And, you know, if there's a way to try these on um, first, uh, it's more important than ever, I think. Um, you know, I always tell people to go to their local uh, running specialty shop, uh, try on shoes, understand how they fit and understand somewhat how they run. Um, if you can do a little demo in the store or outside the store. But I think with these shoes, it's such a different thing. Uh, certainly the fit and how the, the shoe specifically fits your foot. We know, you know, that, that uh, typically shoes fit differently. You know, if you have all the same size nine shoe, they're all going to fit differently. Well, that combined with the ride, I think is important here. I think that, um, yeah, you, you've absolutely got to try um, the shoes and that might be an expensive process, uh, it, uh, an expensive process of trial and error. I think that, you know, the original Nike 4% shoes were super bouncy and unstable. The, the Vaporfly next percent is much more stable. Obviously that's a shoe of choice for a lot of people along with the Adi Zero Adios Pro. Um, and, and, but then the, 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 between those two shoes, the, the Adios Pro, um, is much more stable and smooth than the Nike shoe. The Nike shoe has a distinctive bouncy feeling. Um, so I think with any of these shoes, you've got to understand how you run. I, I know that after the race at the marathon projects, people are calling them pogo shoes because there's so much vertical oscillation, vertical bounce from uh, some of these runners. If you watch how these runners run, um, there's much more of a vertical component. And to that point, I think with the taller and bigger runners, there might be even more advantage. Um uh, in that there's more propulsion happening, um, certainly more ver vertical movement, but um, but it's also a different way of, of running. We're, we're running differently than we used to, but um, certainly the ride from all these shoes is entirely different. I think there's also some of a downfall between this design too. It takes a while to get used to this feeling. And I think when you first train in them, you'll, you'll feel a different level of engagement of muscular um, movement uh, when you first train them. I remember doing like one of the first tempo runs I did in a 4% shoe uh, in 2018. And wow, my my glutes and my hamstrings felt a lot different uh, than they ever did before in other shoes. Um, but to that point too, I think it's hard to run in these shoes sometimes. I think if you look at the, uh, the World Athletics Half Marathon championships that happened this past fall in, in Poland, uh, you saw numerous runners, especially in the elite pack, tripping. And it's partly because um, these shoes uh, have a different uh, engagement with every runner. And some of the kind of bounce factor and instability factor, uh, if you're landing different, if you're cornering, if you are suddenly going from a, a midfoot strike to a heel strike, depending where you are in the pack, um, creates this uncomfortable and awkward kind of bouncing feeling. And so, uh, it does take some time to get used to that. Uh, we, we, we've taken it for granted. We see all these runners go to the starting lines and rip off all these fast times. Well, in the middle of those races, there's, there's some, there's some awkwardness, there's some missteps and there's a lot of things that are happening. So I think that, you know, if I'm speaking to 
a committed age group runner who wants to run their fastest time ever in a marathon or half marathon, that's entirely possible in these shoes. But I think that you have to realize how it impacts your training, how it impacts your gait. Um, and first and foremost, uh, how you select the shoe. There's a lot of good shoes out there that seem to be in the same level of, of performance, but it's still going to come down to a couple things. One, how that shoe fits your foot, how your gait interacts with that shoe. Um, prior to all the super shoe stuff, we know that we've all had shoes that like just don't do it for us, right? We put them on like it doesn't fit that well or I just can't feel fast in that. So that's still the case here, but it's magnified here um, because of this new kind of sensation of how these shoes hit the ground and how your foot pops off the ground. Um, there is a distinct propulsive feel uh, from a lot of these shoes. And there's also a distinct awkward sense if you're not running in them uh, perhaps the most efficient way. So, you know, every one of these shoes has a different foam. Every one of these shoes has a different uh, carbon fiber plate that is shaped differently. And certainly that's going to impact how you run. And just as you had shoes in the past that were, that felt dead or just didn't feel fast. Um, we've all been there on race day and like, oh, my shoes felt terrible, right? Um, I'm not sure you'll feel terrible in these, but you might feel different or awkward enough to to realize that's not the shoe for you. So yeah, go to your local running store. If you have one nearby, um, you know, you'll be at the liberty of what shoes they're selling. I don't think that any store is really selling all these shoes. Maybe, maybe, maybe a few of the bigger or better stores have several of these shoes. But I think the challenge is, is that you're going to be at the liberty of what they have in stock. And so if you go to your local running store and they have uh, the Nike, the Hoka and the Brooks shoe, well, definitely try on all those shoes. And, you know, at some point, um, yeah, price is a factor. I mean, $250 for a pair of running shoes is at some level outrageous. Um, and so is $180. Uh, that's kind of the range of these shoes, $180, $200, you know, $225, you know, $250. That's a lot of money to invest. I will say one thing that um, that's the cost of doing business now. Uh, there's no reason you should be racing in a $100 Brooks launch, even though that's a really good shoe. But why would you go to a marathon or a race, half marathon to, to race in a shoe um, that's $100 off the shelf um, that's not going to give you near the performance? So yeah, so the cost of doing business to run a fast time nowadays is $180, $250. I know that people are upset about that, and um, but that that's what it is. I think that if you look at other sports, certainly if you look at like the cost of high-end performance skis or triathlon bikes or, or anything you, you know, golf clubs. Yeah. There's, there's a huge significant, um, investment factor. And that's what I would consider this too is an investment. I mean, if you're going to spend that much money on a pair of running shoes, hopefully, um, there's a whole bunch of other things tied to that. Uh, the motivation of wanting to run fast, the motivation of training both on a uh, four month basis to your next marathon or on a daily basis to get out the door and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to run my best tempo run today in these shoes. And knowing that you spent, uh, $250 in a pair of shoes to get there. Right. And, and that's the other thing though, too, is like, do you have one of these shoes that you save for racing and have another pair that you're using in training? Yeah, actually, probably. So that actually doubles the price we're talking about. So it, it is a complicated deal. It, it's, it's something that you can't take lightly. Um, $250 is a lot of money to me, and I, I know it is to most marathoners. At the same time, it's a fairly low cost if you look at it over, over the, the span of how it can 
impact that four months of training, that six months of training, that um, that new marathon achievement, uh, hopefully that you can result from it. Um, and, and so over the course of time, if you're investing in $250 or $500 of gear, um, you know, you, you can maybe rationalize that and say, okay, wow, I, I really wanted to do that. And you can look back, I want to achieve this. And again, a lot of other things you can spend a lot of money on, um, whether it's a vacation, whether it's uh, a set of golf clubs, whether it's a, um, you know, a, a new phone, a new, you know, new phones this, this day and age costs a lot of money. And so, um, you can make that, that, that price seem whatever it is, but that's the cost of doing business. But I would definitely advise going to, uh, store, trying as many shoes on as possible. Um, certainly there are online shoe stores, a running warehouse, for example, that have a wide range of these shoes. I'm, I'm not going to ever advocate to buy them, try them on, ship them back if they don't work. But somehow as a runner, that's the most important thing you can do. You can you can get a bad shoe and 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 not train well and not race well. And that's, that's a total loss, right? So I think that uh, certainly the old school idea that you've got to try the shoe on, it's got to fit your foot as best possible. It's got to work with your gait, especially um, given, given the new movement of these shoes and how we run these shoes. Um, and don't just buy one because you saw someone win a race, you know, uh, I think the, the, the vapor five next percent from Nike looks great on runners that are running 203 and 202 in a marathon or, um, 214 from a women's point of view, but that's not a reason for you to buy that shoe unless it's going to fit your foot. Um, I think we've all known in the past certain brands fit differently. Uh, Nike has a narrow fit, uh, you know, Hoka might fit you a little bit wider, whatever it is. But I think that in, in this case, if you're investing in a pair of these shoes, and again, I think, I think if you're a marathon or a half marathon, you have to. Um, you've got to get it to fit right uh, from the word go. So one of the fun things I've done through my career as a journalist is is write about running shoes. And I've, I've met a lot of people that are deep in the innovation of, of shoes. And it's always been fun for me to kind of see prototypes, you know, years in advance. Um, you know, obviously there's, there's running shoe brands that are working on new things all the time. And, and so the question I always ask now is what's next, you know? Um, I think that it's clear uh, that this this new shoe paradigm is here to stay, whether we like it or not, whether we've come to grips with it or not, um, from a performance and a historical point of view, um, is almost irrelevant. I mean, these shoes with carbon fiber plates and these super resilient foams have changed the game entirely, entirely. And I think we'll see that technology advance to other sports. I think we'll see it. Um, and we have to some extent seen some of these things in basketball. We've seen them in soccer. I think that, uh, you know, innovations often start in running and go to other sports. And I think we'll continue to see that, um, just as we've seen the, 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 the running shoe technology, uh, show up in things like nurses shoes. I think certainly if you look at, um, you know, people on their feet a lot, I think one of the things that, that Hoka didn't expect, but, got a huge boost out of was when when minimalism was at its its height in about 2010 2011 hoka came out with the opposite of that which was what i called maximalism um with a lot of modern uh design elements um including the rocker but it it allowed certainly runners to run better more comfortably um and more efficiently i think but also it allowed people on their feet uh, people that were working in the service industry, people working um, as as nurses, uh, people people that were on their feet all the time, 
were suddenly wearing hokas, right? And so hoka, um, you know, would never maybe make a marketing campaign out of that. But certainly we know that some of these things for years have transcended just running and gone into other places. So I think we'll see a lot of that. I think that in running, we'll continue to see innovation. I think one of the fascinating things that um, Jean-Luc Diard from Hoka has told me, he's like, yeah, look at the look at the development of running shoes over the last 40 years compared to other things like cars, like cell phones. Um, all those other things have developed uh, to a much greater degree um, in that time. I mean, 40 years ago, there were very basic cell phones. Um, and 20 years ago, there were cell phones that you could make calls on and start to do texts on. Now you have a, a phone in your pocket that can have every single piece of music um, access to any kind of movie or video. Um, you can reach anyone in the world immediately. Um, and so if you look at that kind of development span of cell phones and think about running shoes, well, running shoes are still, you know, foam and outsole on an upper, and now they have a carbon fiber plate, but really that's the biggest general difference from say 1980 to now. Um, what does that mean? It means that running shoes probably have a lot longer, um, design and development span to go though. We know that running shoes are more uh, restricted by the guidelines of uh, not, you know, producing false energy, things like that. So I think that um, <clears throat> with new materials, new design techniques, new manufacturing processes, uh, I think certainly will continue uh, what we know about running shoes and how they, how they evolve. I think no one would have expected in say 2000, um, when you saw things like, you know, the Nike shock shoes and all these shoes that had EVA foams in them to go from there to minimalism to all of a sudden these max cushion shoes. to now, I, I mean, maybe someone could have predicted that, but no one, you know, everyone thought that the shoes that came out that year were the, oh, those are the ultimate shoes, you know? And I think now runners look at these shoes and think, how can they possibly top this, you know? And, and yet even in the last three to four years, you've seen, uh, uh, the evolution continue. Um, and, and even, even the shoes that, uh, came out two years ago from Nike that were setting all these records have now been improved, obviously. So I think that we'll continue to see, um, running shoes evolve. Um, and that's going to lead to, you know, even greater levels of performance. Um, uh, does that mean, you know, we have to come to grips with this? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, the record books are forever obsolete at this point. Um, you know, we can't compare a time that happened in the 1980s and 1990s to today anymore. And at some point, that was that was bound to happen. I mean, like, if you look at the arc of time and understand how the marathon evolved before all this, if you looked even, you know, from, from the early 1900s, you know, the early Olympics, the early Boston marathons, to even the 1950s, human performance improved considerably from that time. So if runners were running two hours and 40 minutes way back at the turn of the century, um, and then, you know, eventually evolved to run sub 220 by the 1960s, uh, that's a big deal, obviously. Um, and that was purely done by um, training, more commitment, more time, more focus on uh, the sport. And so there was greater evolution and greater performance gain in that time than there has been in the last several years. The difference is now in the last several years, we're getting to these unheard of uh, milestones, you know, sub two hours, which 
as we know, Kipchoge eventually broke in, in Vienna in October of, of 2019 in that time trial. Um, but again, there was greater performance um, advancement in the first half of the 20th century than there has been recently. It's only now that these acute um, goals are being met, um, you know, partially by these great shoes. So I don't know. It's an interesting time for sure. Um, I think that, you know, every other sport has seen um, spikes throughout time uh, based on certainly training, certainly equipment and, and running is, is no difference. I know that again, people are still upset about this being mechanical doping and there's people that were elite runners that I've talked to in recent uh, weeks and recent months that, you know, had run, you know, 207, 209, uh, 211 uh, in their heyday. And it was something to be very proud of. Um, and, and it still is. I, I do think that the runners that ran sub 210 um, in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, those are are for sure to be revered. Um Sub 210 isn't really competitive anymore and hasn't been for a while on the world stage. But when those, when those times were world-class times, um, certainly it came at a more primitive time of running, primitive shoes, primitive training. Um, professional runners weren't uh, as well off as, as they are now. They didn't have the ability to train and do recovery and, and, and all the modern strength work ideas weren't known Um then. So I think, I think that, you know, with each segment of, of running, you have to look at kind of what was happening around that. And, you know, whether it be baseball in the 1870s or running marathons in, in, in 2020, um, you know, obviously sports evolve, things evolve. Um, and we'll continue to see that um, in running shoes. Um, I, honestly, I think as, as a running shoe geek, as a runner, I think it's a fascinating time. I, I'm super thankful for all these changes. Again, I know that that flies in the face of a lot of people. The biggest thing now, though, is it does seem to be a more level playing field. Um, and that's a big thing for me. I think that we want to see competition be equal. I think that uh, as 2021 rolls around in the Olympics in Tokyo that were offset by a year because of COVID, I think you'll see a lot of new shoes on the track um, that people will be wearing, but they'll all be regulated. And that's the key. I mean, whether or not you believe in uh, the backbone of what world athletics is or not, uh, certainly if there is a regulation and they are going through the process to inspect shoes, that's the key thing. Um, certainly you want to have those runners in the 10,000 meters or in the marathon in Tokyo um, to all be wearing shoes that are regulated and legal and therefore have a, a legal race. Ultimately, it comes down to running um uh in racing and and there are no shortcuts and I, that's that's the last thing i'll say here is that like as a as a runner who enjoys training for certain races and competing i think that um it still comes down to how hard you work how well you train and how much tenacity you have on race day you know i think whether your goal is three hours 15 minutes for a marathon or two hours five minutes that's that's never going to go away I think that uh, that's the beauty of the marathon, which is still, I think, one of the most authentic human endeavors um, in sport or otherwise. To be able to run 26.2 miles um, it, 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 and put your body through that, and no matter you know what apparent aid or 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 energy return you're getting from shoes, it still comes down to how much 
you put into that, how much you want it, how much you really care about it. And I think that's the beauty of running. And, you know, whatever shoes you're lacing up um, almost is irrelevant. I, again, tied to the fact that it's a more level playing field and there's many, many brands that are putting out these shoes. But I think that ultimately it's not about the shoes. Ultimately, it is about you and how much, you know, you care about this, you know, and if, and if, if you're just a first time marathoner or someone who just wants to finish a race, that's fine too. Um, you'll get benefits out of these new shoes as well. But I think ultimately, if you're measuring yourself to yourself um, in your performance, either over time or over your previous experiences, ultimately, uh, there are no shortcuts. It's not about the shoes. It's about you and how much you really, really want to do this. All right, that's a wrap. I uh, hope you enjoyed uh, my take on super shoes. I think that it's an exciting time to be a runner. Um, hopefully 2021 will bring us a lot of new races uh, a lot of returning races, a uh, reason to train and all that. And uh, we'll all be out there at the starting line again. Please tune in each week as I talk about all things running shoes, from breakthrough innovation to historic fails and what's coming around the corner in the future. Also, be sure to pick up a copy of my book, Kixology, The Hype, Science, Culture, and Cool of Running Shoes.